0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Sarah Jama. Sarah Jama is an organizer based in Hamilton, Ontario. Despite being only 26, she's been involved in a lot of different kinds of grassroots work in a lot of areas prominently including struggles against anti-black racism, working for disability justice, and a whole range of other things. She had a few experiences of going to protests and trying to speak back to power as a high school student, but it was really as a student at McMaster University that she started to understand oppression in systemic ways and immersed herself in grassroots politics. She got involved, she said, in as many student groups as she could. She was active in student union politics. She participated in Palestinian solidarity work, and played a major role in founding the university's first student-run service for people with disabilities, and in her final year, she was president of the McMaster Womanists. One of the first off-campus actions she was involved in planning was a low-key vigil in a local park in the aftermath of some of 2015's high-profile killings of black people by police. The vastly disproportionate response by local police to this action pushed her to start thinking in new ways about what needs to happen to make systemic change. Around this time, she got more involved in electoral politics, which gave her a deeper understanding of how mainstream institutions work, and how they can be pressured to create change. She interned in the office of a city councilor, co-chaired a successful municipal election campaign, and played a major role in a successful campaign for a federal seat. Even in the middle of that, however, she remained involved in more grassroots activities, too. A major piece of her work was co-founding the Disability Justice Network of Ontario. Disability Justice is a political framework that originated with US-based arts collective Sins Invalid. As they articulated it, Disability Justice seeks to go beyond single-issue and accessibility-focused disability politics, and instead offers an intersectional, anti-capitalist, and transformational vision for collective liberation. The Disability Justice Network of Ontario is particularly focused on building capacity, including collective political capacity, among youth with disabilities, particularly who are racialized and queer. Most recently, Jama has brought her understanding of disability justice to her involvement in local grassroots responses to two great crises of the moment. Soon after the magnitude of the COVID-19 pandemic became apparent, The Disability Justice Network, and the Hamilton Student Mobilization Network started a mutual aid project called Caremongering Hamilton. Mutual aid is the practice of ordinary people collectively supporting and caring for one another, often when mainstream systems can't or won't, and often as part of larger efforts to push for change. From an initial, ad-hoc, Facebook-based process, the sheer scale of the need, plus the risks around infection, mean that these days, the group's main focus is a more centralized and systematized distribution of food kits to people who need them. JAMA differentiates this work from mainstream emergency food systems by pointing to their refusal to surveil and police recipients, their focus on not just meeting needs but building relationships and community through actively involving people, and their elaboration of a set of principles, including the disability justice framework, prison abolitionist politics, and more, that both inform how the work happens and that are regularly part of communication within the project. And in the middle of the pandemic, we have of course seen a massive continent-wide uprising against police brutality and anti-black racism. The group of young organizers that JAMA is part of decided that their first action would draw on existing experiences of local organizing around anti-black racism and policing to articulate a set of concrete local demands focused on defunding the police, removing police from educational institutions, and adequately resourcing communities. They are now part of efforts to put together a sustained local campaign around these demands. I speak with JAMA about her trajectory as an organizer, about disability justice, About mutual aid during a pandemic, and about the struggle against anti-black racism and police brutality.
1: My name is Sarah. I am an organizer here in Hamilton, Ontario. I think the very first protest that I ever went to, I was 15, and I think it was for Omar Khadr back when I lived in Edmonton. I remember not understanding what was going on around me, but wanting to just sort of get involved. The very first time I actually started to understand why it's important to start working collectively with other people was when I was in grade 12 and there was a kid who was in grade nine and he was also in a wheelchair and I remember him telling me that he wanted to go to art school but the art school that he wanted to go to wasn't accessible and I didn't really understand systemic ableism or systemic oppression. And so I remember getting on a bus to go to downtown Toronto, which also isn't super accessible. And I attempted to delegate in front of this thing called the Special Education Advisory Committee, except I didn't actually know how to delegate and I didn't know how these systems worked. So I just showed up and I thought I could talk to these people. And I remember looking around and seeing just like a U-shaped table of people who didn't look like me, didn't sound like me. Most of them didn't visibly have disabilities. And I came in and the chair of the board at the time looked at me and he said, Who do you think you are to come here? You're not on the agenda. You don't have speaking rights. And he kind of laughed at me. And I think for me, that was the first time I really understood what power looks like and how people will continue to always tell me that people who don't have power don't have the right to speak don't have the right to express their opinion, don't have the right to make the changes that would make their lives better because there are people who are privileged or classist or racist or sexist or ableist who are benefiting from these systems and the structures as they are. And so I really started to think about my role and what it means to push against these ideas and actually change the system from the outside and from the inside. And so I got accepted to McMaster. I joined a bunch of different groups and coalitions on campus. In my first year, I played a role in trying to get BDS to pass and it failed.
0: Uh, That stands for Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, an important global movement in solidarity with the struggles by the Palestinian people for justice and liberation.
1: But then in my second year, just working with a bunch of coalitions on campus, I was able to understand what it is that will get people to understand issues that don't deeply affect them. And it's through talking about systemic issues and our role in changing things in ways that doesn't center one person's identity I think it was the first time since the 60s that an annual general meeting for the McMaster Students Union had like 700 people or whatever. And that motion around BDS passed. I also joined the Student Union and fought really hard against, you know, narratives around who belongs in those spaces and pushed to create the first ever student run service for people with disabilities by people with disabilities called MaxS. Just trying to spend my time on campus, understanding how the world works and how to make change. In a lot of schools in Ontario, there's basic organizing training from the Canadian Federation of Students. Like, I know people have qualms with CFS, so I'm not bigging them up or, like, tearing them down. But I'm just saying, matter-of-factly, that CFS does do a lot of basic training around, like, how to talk to the media, how to do direct action, how to write policy And McMaster is not a CFS school. It's a school that is with the Ontario Undergraduate Student Alliance, and that training doesn't exist. So a lot of us spent a lot of time learning from each other what worked, what didn't work, and there was a lot of like struggle that way. Then I was involved in the McMaster Womanist in my last year of campus as president and just really tried to understand ways that we could move some of the work we were doing on campus off campus. Understanding that there weren't a lot of groups in that time talking about, you know, anti-Black racism in Hamilton that were student-led. So the summer of, I think, 2015, when there was a week where so many Black people were being killed in the States and then also in Ontario, and it was really hard. People just wanted to be able to grieve and process. So the McMaster Romanists held a vigil in Victoria Park. About 50 people came. It was a small turnout, but we had poets. We had various speakers come. And I remember learning later on that the Hamilton police had spent $30,000 to surveil the work we were doing in Victoria Park. And it was just student run. And I remember being just terrified because there was a big action ban. There were the police on horses. There were police undercover just everywhere around the park. And it was terrifying. And really understanding that even just to grieve, even just to come together and have a visual. It wasn't even a protest, a visual. We were going to be surveilled and we didn't have the right to that space. So I started to think more about work that could happen off campus and really understanding the best ways to make systemic change. Matthew Green became a huge mentor for me.
0: Uh, And he was a city councillor at the time, in fact, Hamilton's first ever black member of council, and he's now a member of parliament for the NDP.
1: He talked to me about how it's important to understand the language of systems in order to be able to, you know, change the system as well. Not to say that internal systems change is the only important thing, but to have the language is also another form of being able and equipped to fight against people in positions of power who might not agree with you. So I was and intern in his office for about a year. There I really got to understand the concept that you can't take down a system without understanding the blueprint of it first, because it can fall on top of you. And I started to consider, like, okay, while we're doing stuff outside, how do we also make sure that there are people inside reflecting our values? So I got involved in Andrew Horvath's campaign.
0: Uh, she is the leader of the Ontario NDP, and she represents Hamilton Centre.
1: I was a volunteer contact organiser. Then I used those skills to help co-manage with Daniela Giulietti, Narendra Nims' election. She's the first woman of color to be elected ever in Hamilton and really started to understand the mechanics of actually running elections. And then after that, I also played a significant role in organizing Matthew Green's election federally. I learned a lot. I also understood that that's not the only way to make change in all the spaces I've ever been in, I didn't really feel fully reflected because not a lot of places were talking about disability justice. There were times in university where I was called not radical enough because I would talk about things like, you know, my work around creating access, the student services is just as important as some of the other work, or you have to consider having accessible meetings when you're doing this work. You can't have systemic change in the way that you talk about theoretically if you're not centering the most vulnerable. And that includes people who are not seen as having the right to exist on this planet because we're not as productive. Like, some people with disabilities aren't seen as productive or as valued, right? And so we have to center those people because, like, me as having a disability and people around me as having disabilities, we are the antithesis of capitalism, right? We say, no, like, we do have value. There's value outside of your labor. You should have the right to exist and to eat and to be housed and to live a good life, regardless of if you can contribute back to the economy. People who are revolutionary or who want to make change cannot, cannot do this work without centering people with disabilities. And so I was grappling with this as well, like trying to get people to understand, like when I do a visual and there's police that show up and I'm scared. It's because also I'm in a wheelchair. It means different things for me to be black and to be in a wheelchair and be at the front. My level of fear is heightened. It's different than a white man who's standing there talking about socialism and ideology. So then I worked with some friends. We also launched the Disability Justice Network of Ontario on September 13th, 2018. We have a youth council. We have a campaigns committee, which is kind of like a political actions committee and then a research committee. And the whole point of the Disability Justice Network of Ontario is to build capacity in young people with disabilities, predominantly racialized and queer, to ask the question, what do you do when the systems in place don't work for you? Because oftentimes we're trained to ask for help. And I think that's something I've pushed against my whole life. This concept that I have to ask for help. This concept that we don't have the right to be a part of building the system that we want to see changed. So we're working to train up young people with disabilities to do that work. We've had like trainings on digital organizing, on environmental justice and disability justice. We've had a bunch of different events and ways in which people are able to like have these conversations. We launched a campaign around the assistive devices program, which is a program that people in Ontario can apply to get funding for their assistive devices. Disability justice as a term was created by Sims and Valid, which is a Black, racialized, queer, like, arts collective. And they were saying that it's not enough to talk about accessibility. You have to start talking about disability justice. It's not enough to say that we need to, you know, add ramps to stores or focus on, like, allowing people with disabilities to expend economic purchasing power you have to think about how people are being treated once the door is even open to begin with. Like, what's the point in talking about access to education if the education system is inherently ableist and only 50% of people with severe disabilities make it to post-secondary education in Ontario? Or that only 72% of women with disabilities who have post-secondary education end up employed? Or that if you have a disability in Canada, you're three times more likely, if you're a woman, to be sexually assaulted and two times more likely to be experiencing a hate crime or violence, right? And how these issues are connected to anti-Black racism and the ways in which police treat Black people with disabilities, like Abdurrahman Abdi in Ottawa, who was killed by police because of a noise complaint. And he's somebody who was autistic. Or looking at Andrew Loku, Jermaine Carby, like all these people, even Regis.
0: Uh, Regis Korchinski-Paquet was an Afro-Indigenous woman who died after falling from a high balcony in a Toronto apartment building when only police were present, under what her family says were very suspicious circumstances.
1: Police were supposed to de-escalate the situation. Her mom called Cam to-
0: Uh, that's the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. In order for them
1: to protect and support her. And she's not with us right now, you know? So cases like this happen over and over and over again, even in Canada. I'm excited to see a space where we can talk about disability justice and away from liberal conversations around access. Like it's not enough to talk about, you know, making sure people feel equal if the medical system says we're not equal, if the prison systems are not seeing people with disabilities as equal or as human, right? It's not enough just to talk about labor and productivity. So the Disability Justice Network of Ontario is predominantly focused on youth But we do things in the community, like as soon as COVID hit, we hit the ground running and started a massive mutual aid project here in Hamilton, where we put together food kits and started delivering it to anybody who needed it in Hamilton. Different from food banks in the sense that we don't ask you for your ID. We don't police you. We don't say how many times you can request a food kit. Um, And we've fed like thousands and thousands of people so far. And it's predominantly run by students and people with disabilities and racialized people here in Hamilton, trying to just make sure that everybody's fed. So it's understanding that, like, we don't just center ourselves, too. We do the work that needs to be done. And that also means feeding people and supporting people who might not be disabled but still need support or who might not quite understand why we post things like don't call the police or don't call CAS. Like, we're still supporting people. One of my friends in the group says, caremongering our group is, it's like the politics of struggle. We are literally trying to educate people about the work we're doing, but then also not holding it against them if they don't fully understand it and just trying to do the work that matters. It's like you meet people where they're at, you don't get mad at people if they disagree with you or they don't understand where you're at, you just constantly do the work. It's tiring, it's tiring, but it's the work that needs to be done.
0: So it's that grounding in the disability justice framework that seems to be a pretty distinctive feature of the caremongering group here in Hamilton compared to some of the mutual aid projects I've heard about in other cities. Draw out a little more for listeners what disability justice means for how you do this work.
1: I think it just understands that it's especially important to make sure that we're not policing who's accessing services and we're also talking about like the politics behind what we're doing as much as we can like posting infographics and things like that. It's also about our team continuously talking about how to keep people safe. And I'm not saying we're experts at this, but like one of our team members came up with a system where people can sign up for shifts within two weeks, but then they have to agree to quarantine and not sign up for a shift for the two weeks after. Because we also want people to keep other people safe here in Hamilton. It's also about figuring out how to support the group in other ways. So whether it's like talking about prison abolition and supporting people who have been recently released with like supporting through donations, you know, covering the cost of ankle bracelets. Cause we recently learned that if you're released from the Barton jail, even through the time of COVID, you still have to pay like $800 a month or something stupid for your ankle bracelet. How are people gonna do that if there's no jobs? So talking about that, talking about how to support our core team members who have disabilities and who might need financial support, these are all debates and conversations and policies that we're trying to implement in our group over and over again. And I think that is rooted in disability justice. And I'm not saying we're perfect at it. We definitely, everyone in our group has struggled with the concept of like taking breaks and things like that. But it's definitely conversations that we continue to have and like try to center as much as possible.
0: One of the important points raised in many discussions that have been happening about mutual aid during the pandemic is how, even despite best intentions, the pull of the work and the pull of people's needs can draw even a very politically grounded mutual aid project towards more of a charity model. How is the caremongering group in Hamilton trying to stay rooted in a political understanding of what mutual aid is supposed to be?
1: Yeah, so we put out our key principles on how to keep communities safe and, you know, support one another and just try to break down the idea that mutual aid is not about state reliance, it's about community supporting each other. But then also, it's not all perfect. We've raised like $40,000 just from community members who have donated over and over again, just to caremongering, right, to support the groceries. But we have also taken support from city funding and like the community foundation and things like that. Because the needs are also there too. So constantly grappling with how to continue to do this work in a way that's sticking to our principles, but also continuing to be able to feed people. Just because we're doing this work, it doesn't mean we can't critique the nonprofit industrial complex. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck to. It's like the golden handcuff situation. You can't fight against the system that helps you. But that's inherently incorrect. Like change will never happen if we can't critique these systems. And so we're firm in that. And it's not okay for the government to put the onus of making sure people are fed and taken care of on the non-profit industrial complex, which is already inherently flawed. It doesn't have capacity. We should just be making sure everybody has enough to be fed. That's the responsibility of the government. And that's not currently being taken up. And so just really trying to grapple with that political understanding ourselves in terms of why we're doing this work, but also being clear on this idea that no matter what we do, even at Caremongering Hamilton, it's not going to be enough. And it's not because of us. It's because of the system that we're currently living in and being okay to say that. And then also understanding that mutual aid is a great concept. But in the climate of the pandemic, it's also not safe all the time to be having people constantly be dropping things off to people's houses, which is why we centralize the process a little bit. So we take requests in. We build the kits, we call people in advance to say your food's going to be delivered, and then we get the volunteers on their list to just deliver the food kits to people. So it's just trying to grapple with the principles of mutual aid and then also trying to make that manifest in current pandemic situations and then also just the politics of it. It's hard, it's complicated, it's not easy, but we're constantly challenging ourselves and developing over time.
0: And of course, in the middle of all of this, there was the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the uprising against police brutality and anti-Black racism that has swept across North America. I know there have been a number of actions in Hamilton organized by different people with a range of different approaches. Talk a little bit about the political context and about the initial action organized by the group that you're a part of.
1: First of all, it's been very hard to process what's going on. I think a lot of us still are processing and trying to process while we're also talking about it. What I'll say is like police violence isn't new and Black people have been killed and harmed by police and continue to be killed and harmed by police over and over and over again. We've seen it here with Andrew Loku, Jermaine Carby, Friend Abdi, many other people here, and then Regis most recently here in Toronto. The police exist not to protect people. They exist to surveil and to like harm Black and racialized communities. It doesn't make sense that we have police in our schools I work with youth in Hamilton, and the amount of stories that I'll hear of kids being arbitrarily stopped on the street or, like, feeling unsafe in their own schools because there's police there. We shouldn't have half of our operating budget going just to policing at all.
0: And that's a reference to the city of Hamilton's budget.
1: It's not enough to keep talking about solidarity or keep talking about grief. Like, we actually have to start talking about the solution to police brutality. And that's to say stop criminalizing Black people. Stop funding police brutality, divest from policing in our city, and start talking about things like divesting in a serious way. There's a coalition that formed a couple months ago in Hamilton, just with young people who are organizers wanting to understand what issues we should prioritize in Hamilton. Because we were realizing that we kept getting pulled into various elections, and we were very skilled at like the various things we were being pulled into, and we learned a lot. But at the same time, it's like, how do we focus on priorities that directly and immediately impact us? It's like 20 people. By no means am I leading it or anything like that. I'm just one member supporting their work. Most of the leadership is very young, younger than I am. One of the conversations we had already highlighted before all the stuff in the States went down was policing in Hamilton and wanting to divest, and then everything happened so quickly. So there were conversations on how do we bring attention to the issues that are important. So two rallies happened in Hamilton in solidarity with what was going on in the state. Both these sort of like rallies didn't really have demands, and so we wanted to help direct the conversation in Hamilton in terms of like what the solutions are. And so some people in our group reached out to
0: BLM. Uh, And that's Black Lives Matter Toronto. The Hamilton group live-streamed their demands from sites around the city using BLMTO's platform.
1: To be able to use their platform because they have a lot of reach. And then the group worked on different demands around divesting from police.
0: Police shouldn't exist at McMaster
1: or in schools. And, you know, making sure that the SIU, the Special Investigations Unit,
0: Uh, That's the body responsible for investigating when there's death or serious violence in which the police are implicated.
1: It's actually citizen-run and is a local committee run by racialized people, black and racialized people and indigenous people. We're the ones most impacted by police brutality and police violence. There's a petition floating around and a section on the petition for people to identify if they want to stay involved. But reading out the demands, that was just one tactic. To get people to start talking about it. So, more will be done. And there are people talking about the importance of divesting from policing across the province. And so, yeah, it's definitely not just an us thing.
0: And I know in the context of action in this moment, you've been trying to encourage conversations about things like risk and safety and community accountability in what gets organized and how. Recognizing, for instance, who is disproportionately at risk from the pandemic, from police, and during political action, but also wanting to maximize the space for new people to get active. Just briefly before we finish, why and how are those important conversations to be having right now?
1: So, two rallies happened in Hamilton. The first rally happened in Gage Park. The poster was made by, like, a 17-year-old white high schooler who, like, met well and wanted to, like, get people to come out but who didn't actually show up to the actual rally. And so it ended up my friends and I going to just make sure everybody was socially distanced and safe to make sure people were okay out of safety. I'm not trying to police how people are doing what they do. And like, I'm not an expert at all. I think I put that tweet out in terms of like things to look out for when you're going to attend a protest or rally because I was really worried about all the young high school kids who showed up and the person who had called them together, put out the poster, wasn't there. But yet, Gage Park was surrounded by police. And I think with all the young people who are wanting to get involved now, it's important to understand all these things. Some people disagree with me and they say that, you know, we shouldn't try to even like talk about these things or tell people what to do. But I think, as somebody who went to a school that had no training at all, and the amount of times we sat in a room and cried after an action or something, or the ways in which people put themselves at risk, particularly black, brown, and queer people, just on campus alone, because there was no one to ask, no one to talk to, no one to mentor, I can empathize with that, and I can remember that, and I can say, hey, yo, like, if you're planning to do something, I don't have all the answers, but, like, reach out to people who are doing it for support, and if not, we'll show up anyway and try to help when we can, particularly because we're in a pandemic.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Sarah Jama, an organizer in Hamilton, Ontario. To learn more about her work, search for her on Twitter, and to learn more about the Disability Justice Network of Ontario, go to djno.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.